So stand together with me and let's read just a portion of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. Then Jesus said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you and rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray for just a moment. Father in heaven, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to work through me and through all of us to better understand your word. We pray that we would receive this and our response to you would be more reverence, more fear, more worship, and more of an appreciation for our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Well, these are hard words, and so much of Jesus' ministry were hard words. Not unlike the passage we read from Malachi chapter 2, Jesus' words are challenging, largely because he's drilling into our souls and identifying our sinful nature and our need for a Savior. So that's one reason why his ministry is a tough ministry. His love is a tough love. He has a love for his people and he has a hatred towards all that which is evil and deceptive and wrong. One way to put it is Jesus is tender to the sheep and vicious to the wolves. And I believe that's what we are seeing here in these first two verses. These words are so severe as we read these words. And our hearts are overwhelmed with a reverence for God, a deep respect for the warnings of Jesus, especially as we live in these sorts of times. We live in severe times ourselves. We face so much apostasy and so much deception and so many attempts to stumble the little ones. Uh, There's much hardness of heart around as well. And this church has undergone more excommunications than I've ever experienced, ever seen in my lifetime. And that's because uh, Jesus' warnings are real. And they need to be received by those who have ears to hear. And that's what I kept saying in Revelation 2 and 3, is all these successive warnings to the churches. And then as we read the warnings or hear the warnings from the pulpit, our response should be to receive them, to hear them, and to respond with, with a fear and a reverence. In Acts chapter 5 and throughout the book of Acts, you find the people of God, as, as discipline comes into the church and as warnings are leveled in the various churches, they respond with a, a, sens- a, a sensitivity and a, a fear. And More fear and reverence came upon the church as all of these things were playing out. So, so it's appropriate for us to respond uh, to the Word and the circumstances that our church has, has gone through uh, with a reverence for God, more of a fear of God. It's okay. I feel a little shaken tonight sharing that with Brother Todd, and he basically said the same thing to me. I feel a weightiness and more of a reverence for God uh, as, as we have experienced certain things in this church as well. But what we want out of the Word, you know, as, as we hear Brother Josh bring the message on a Sunday morning, 
How do we want to respond to that but to fear God more, to reverence God more, to worship God more, to believe in God, certainly, and to love God more and more. That needs to be the, the response of everybody who hears the Word of God on a Sunday morning or evening. Well, this evening we're going to look at this passage. First, one contains a doctrinal truth and a serious warning. A doctrinal truth and a serious warning. So let's, let's take a look at the doctrinal truth. Uh, and it concerns this uh, very short segment that Jesus gives to us. A very deep statement uh, that refers to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Both, uh, take a look at it. It's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. The word offenses is the word skandalon. We, we get the word scandal from it, but that's not exactly what the word means. The word has to do with like a deadly snare, a trap. Think of a bear trap. Get your foot in the bear trap, can't get it out, and it digs into your skin, and uh, you might even die if you step into that trap. So a scandalone, or these offenses, are snares and deadly traps that usually lead to sin and error. Okay, so that's... That's what Jesus is warning about here. It's possible that no offenses, scandal on should come, but that we will see bear traps. We will see some sort of a, a, a grabbing onto us and a, a capturing or attempts to capture us and to lead us into sin or error. That's the sort of thing that uh, Jesus told his disciples we're going to see. Now, there are two propositions here, and I want you to take a look very carefully at the statement. First of all, scandalone must come, that is, deadly traps and stairs are absolutely going to be present within the churches. But then secondly, woe to the man responsible for these deadly traps and snares. Our Lord brings a similar principle in Matthew chapter 26, where there he's sitting around the table. Remember the Lord's table, the first time that he brings it out. And he, he said to his disciples, he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And he said, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it's written of him, and woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So same kind of principle, that, that Jesus is heading to the cross. It's inevitable. There's no two ways about it. It has been directed. It's been predestined by God Almighty himself. But, uh, but there will be a means by which that will come about, and that will be through the, uh, through the work of this man, Judas. And so, now, as I talk about these things, I want to talk to the adults first and then to the children. I realize that this is a difficult topic, but it's a very important topic, so I, I want to bring it out to the adults first, and then I have some comments for the children as well. So, kids, if you don't understand some of the th these things that I'm saying, well, don't worry about it. I don't understand it very well myself. So let me say that from the outset. But, uh, but we do get something from God's Word. It's important that adults be instructed in the church services as well as the children, and so I want to speak to the adults as well as to the children tonight. There are two things operating simultaneously here. The determined purpose of God and the lawless hands that will do the dirty deed. Okay, two things going on. God ordains the cross and the way to the cross must include Judas, Annas the high priest, and all the others that nailed Jesus to that cross. But God will judge the men who did it. And that's the point that Jesus is bringing out here in Luke chapter 17. I want to give you a couple of examples that may help you to understand what I'm saying. There are people who do bad things in this world. Uh, there are people who decide to rob a bank, for example. 
Now, when a man decides to rob a bank, he makes a decision. It's based upon his own free will. Nobody coerces him to do it. Nobody's putting a gun to his head or uh, hypnotizing him. You will rob the bank. You will rob the bank. Nobody's doing anything like that. Uh, But he is subject to forces upon his will. Influences press in upon all of us, including the man who decides to rob a bank. Perhaps he has watched movies about bank robbery and glorifying bank robbery. I understand there are some movies out there that glorify bank robbery. Friends of the unsavory sort may have some influence upon him. His wife's incessant complaining about finances. His employer dismissing him from the job and so on. So you see there are forces in the universe that press in upon a man. Now chief of these influences is Adam's sinful nature and perhaps a dysfunctional nurture by parents who had their own run-ins with the law. Okay? So that would be the nurture element. That is, you know, that, that part that comes uh, from, from outside. And then there's the nature. That's his inside. That's, that's the influence of his own wicked heart that has been inherited from Grandpa Adam. So he's got that working on him as well as these external environmental forces. We call that nurture. So he has forces from the outside, forces from the inside, and then he goes to rob the bank. Yet, we will not blame Adam for the man's choice. Nobody blames Adam. Nobody stands up in a court of law and says, but Adam made me do it. Nobody says, but I had a dysfunction. Well, they, maybe they make those arguments today, but up until 10 years ago, they didn't make those arguments. Today, they'll say, my mother made me do it. But, uh, but we don't blame. We wouldn't blame any of these tertiary causes for the man's choice to rob the bank. Now, every one of these tertiary forces are under the providential hand of God. See, none of that was an accident. We, we, we can never look at these events and occurrences that go on in people's lives as accidents. These were intended. God ordains all of the actions and reactions that occur in our world around us. And I want to give you an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 22. This is a real life example. It has to do with Ahab heading out to battle. And uh, you all know the story about Micaiah, the prophet, and all of that, but I just want to grab a couple of verses, 20 through 22, of 1 Kings 22, just so you can see this uh, working its way out in real life. The Lord said, 1 Kings 22, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Again, the intent is what? That Ahab be killed. That's, that's what God has ordained for this wicked king. The king is going to be killed today. But now he's got to make the decision to go to war at Ramoth Gilead. And now, this is, this is what the Lord is saying up in the courts of heaven. And these spirits are interacting with him. And one said on this manner, another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. So here's a demon that stepped forward and said, hey, I'll do it. 
And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. Now, God's purpose was fixed in, in this, that Ahab would be killed. He was going to battle. He was going to die in battle. All the tertiary and secondary causes, including Ahab's and Jehoshaphat's ultimate decision to enter the battle, played a part in the final outcome. But when it came to the fatal blow, there's another point in the story. And this also indicates God's sovereignty, not just over the, the willful uh, personal decisions made on the part of Ahab and this demon, but also on the part of this man who took this uh, shot in the air. When it came to the fatal blow, the arrow that took King Ahab down was shot haphazardly into the air. Listen to this, verse 34, a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. And that's how Ahab died. Now, no human intention was attached to the immediate cause of the mortal wound for this king. So here we also find that God is completely sovereign over the evil spirits, the decisions made by men to enter the battle, and the inanimate forces of the universe to bring about the demise of this wicked king. Do you see that? God ordained all of these things, including the false prophets, the demon that influenced the false prophets, Micaiah, Ahab, Jehoshaphat, and the man who took the venture to shoot the arrow into the air. So in case somebody is tempted to attribute evil to God, let me ask the question, does God force the hand of the man who does the dirty deed. Now I want you to notice that here in this convention where the Lord asks the attending spirits if any would be willing to go up to Ramoth Gilead or go up to the king to persuade him to go to Ramoth Gilead. The point is God did not force the lying spirit, yet the lying spirit voluntarily agreed to fulfill the divine purpose. You see, the, the, the demon himself was not coerced, and neither is Ahab. Now, the toughest question relating to the problem of evil is this. How does God's good purposes, how can they be fulfilled in that which is sinful and evil? Beyond any doubt, the arch crime in history, of course, was the crucifixion of the most innocent, most blessed Son of God Himself at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. Yet, read Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, we find that Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. That's Acts 2 verses 23 and 24. So, even the arch crime in history, the worst possible evil event that could have ever happened in all of human history was determined by God to happen. And yet, it was the wicked hands of men that did the dastardly deed. This also was according to the determinate counsel of God. Judas, arguably, is the most evil man who ever lived. Uh, to, to, to bring offenses like this against Jesus or to bring offenses like this against the church is the most evil thing a person can do. The most evil thing a person can do is undermine the church of Jesus Christ. 
It's to become the betrayer. It's to turn uh, God's people into the magistrates. This is, this is for, for doing that which is righteous, for doing that which is according to God's will. Now, Judas turned in our Savior. And so this, I think, is arguably the, the worst deed ever done by a human, with perhaps the exception of the original sin in the garden. But this is the way that Judas is presented in Scripture. But, uh, but the worst day in history, the worst act in history, turns out to produce the best consequence, all by the all-wise determination of God. Much like what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50 when he said, Y'all sold me into slavery, but you meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Each event predetermined and affected by the conscious will of God or man bears an intention for good or for ill. That's because, you see, people intend something. They intend to do something. Depending upon the, the righteous or unrighteous nature of their, their hearts, their will will act and their will will intend to accomplish that which is either good or evil. When a man sets out to decide to rob a bank, he is intending to do that which is evil. See, his intent is to hurt somebody, as Judas's intent was to hurt our Savior. Now, when somebody decides to go out to the mission field to bring the gospel to the, those who have never heard the good news, he intends to accomplish something that is good. So a person can intend to do that which is good or that which is evil. So whether it's a human being, a demon, an angel, or God himself, all personalities, all moral personalities have a good intent or a bad intent in all that they intend to do. It's either good or bad. In the case of the crucifixion of Jesus, the intent of Judas, the intent of the Jews, the intent of the Romans are saturated in ultimate evil. But the intent of God is to accomplish that which would be absolutely and infinitely good. The final end intended by those wicked hands was to bring about something very evil. But the final end intended by God was to bring about something infinitely good. So here's the glorious thing of all of this. This is the, 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 the thing we are, are to think about when we think about the worst possible scenario or when we think about the cross of Jesus Christ. By God's sovereign will and ultimately good intent, He totally obliterated the evil effect intended by the wicked hand and wills of men or demons in order to bring about the highest good. In other words, He takes that evil intent and He, 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 he curtails it. He cuts it off. He disables all of the evil intent by all of the demons from hell and all of the, the intent of the Romans and the Jews to bring about the ultimately destructive act. God says, no, it's not going to happen. Instead, He diverts it to the ultimately good end. That, my friends, can only happen by the all-wise, all-sovereign, and all-good God to whom we say, hallelujah, today and forever and ever, amen. Everybody say hallelujah if you agree with that. Amen. What a glorious thing that, uh, that God should redeem His people and deal the death blow to death itself through this ultimately good act that somehow curtails this evil intent on the part of the Romans and Jews. Now let me ask you this. Was 
the thing that Jesus accomplished at the cross and by his resurrection, what the Romans and Jews intended to do. Did the Romans and Jews say, oh good, we're going to do this so that Jesus will overcome Satan and sin for his people, crush death, overcome the ultimate enemies of the human soul. That's our intent. I sure hope that happens. Is that what the Romans and Jews were doing? Oh, no, no, no. That's not what they intended to do. They didn't say, oh, this will produce the highest good. But by his own indeterminate will operating the event, the one true and living God confounded the intent of the wicked, bent the trajectory of the event towards the infinite good. So this is the way I see it you know, in terms of on paper. I could draw this out for you if you would like. But the, the, those who have the evil intent, we're talking about Judas, the Romans, the Jews, etc. They're intending to get rid of the Messiah, that is Jesus, forever and ever. That's their intent, to kill him. But God enters the event, and he, he takes that, that trajectory, see? And he, he bends it. And it moves in the best possible direction to accomplish the ultimate good. That's amazing. That should cause your heart to go, wow! Praise God! He can pull it off! Now, does God mean it for good while these other fellows mean it for evil? Yes. With any sinful event, God sovereignly ordains the event itself while contributing nothing to the evil intent and the lustful heart associated with the events. He has nothing to do with the sin committed. Full responsibility lies with the man who chooses to sin. And this is what Jesus is bringing out here in the first verse of Luke chapter 17. These are the most awesome considerations in Scripture. I don't think you'll find anything more awesome than this fact right here, this truth, what we find in Acts 17 or Acts 2 and Luke 17. How does our sovereign God pull all this off? We really have no idea. How God determined the death of his son without coercing the wicked hands of the men who did it, we don't know. We don't know how he does it. Now, I think the best explanation for this is Jonathan Edwards' simple quote, and I'll just leave you with that. I believe this. This, I believe, perfectly presents the scriptural idea conveyed in Acts 2 and Luke 17. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. The, God is the permitter of sin and at the same time a disposer of the state of events. I'll say that one more time because I think this is it. God, He doesn't cause. He permits sin because sin is not the event itself. He is the disposer of the state of events. And the only way to distinguish this is by realizing that each has a different motivation. Sin is not the event. Sin is a descriptive of the event. All right, that's it for the adults. Children, this is the most difficult subject in the world. No philosopher has ever resolved the tension of the determinate, indeterminate thing relating to the world around us. So we don't understand these things. But here's what we can tell you, children. God is very, very powerful. Okay? Children, do you understand that? God is very, very powerful. So every child needs to be listening right now. I have just 
I have a little bit for you. God is very, very powerful. God is also very, very good. And God is very, very much in control of everything that goes on in your life. Did, did you lose your teddy bear yesterday? God is in control of your teddy bear. He knows where it is, by the way. You just pray, pray to him. And, and he might be able to, you know, point it out to you. I've, I've prayed to God about things I've lost, and he just points it out to me immediately. It's amazing. But God is very, very much in control of everything that goes on in your life. God has this whole world planned out, and everything is going to end well. Do you believe that, children? God's planned out everything. He's planned out your life. He's planned everything out until the very, very end, when we all get to heaven at the very end. God has it all planned out, and no wicked man can ruin God's plans and purposes. Not even the devil. Nothing can ruin God's plans and purposes. And everything is going to turn out well. It doesn't matter how bad things get in your life. Now, I hope this doesn't happen, but what if you lose your mother and your father? Some children have these nightmares. I've, I've heard this. I think my, my wife, she told me the other day, when she was a little, little girl, she had a dream that she lost her mother. She cried for like all day or something, a long time. You know? But what if, that, what if something very, very bad happens in your life? All things work together for good. Children, you need to believe that. God always wins. And what, you know what that means? That means good always wins. Let's say that together. Good always wins. Good always wins. God always wins. God always wins. Okay. Well, let's move on. That's the doctrine. Now let's hit, hit the warning briefly. The warning. Luke 17, again, verse 1. It's impossible that no offenses should come but woe to him through whom they do come. That is, we should fully expect Judas, fully expect Alexander the coppersmith, Jezebel, Nero, all the other bear traps out there. We should expect them because God has ordained that these things will happen. Judas was not a surprise to God. All that was ordained by God, that Judas would be the means by which Jesus would be betrayed and the means by which Jesus would be crucified and bring about our salvation. Now, there will be a fair amount of flack between here and heaven for us. Every day we wake up and we are ready for Jezebel and Judas. One is a betrayer, the other is a tempter. That's the difference. Either way, they provide snares for the ministry and they work hard to ruin our churches. Whether it be the Jezebel spirit, or the Judas spirit, you hear the spirits, or the demons, yes, and sometimes people, and sometimes a little bit of a mix. But they come and they, they hassle the church, they persecute us, they twist the words of leaders in the church, they never allow for any qualification, they create straw men, caricatures, they become the most dangerous to the church in that they're turncoats, deceivers, and betrayers. They usually don't think of themselves this way, they think they're pretty good guys on a crusade for truth, their own truth. And they work hard to divide the church by gossip and slander, they bring antinomianism into the church. Uh, they, they bring wokeism into the church. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus warns the church affected by the doctrines of Balaam and Jezebel. Who are these people? These are antinomians. They, they, they encourage God's people to disobey God's law. It's basically what Balaam and Jezebel are doing in these churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, Judas, Jezebel, Simon, sorcerer, they bring about tens of thousands of false doctrines into the church. You'd be shocked at the sheer number of bad doctrine out there. Oh, wait a minute, you've been on the internet, so you wouldn't be shocked. 
Um, I, I think in my life, personally, I've encountered probably 50 to 100 strange cults, eccentric home church leaders, crazy, crazy demonically inspired self-proclaimed prophetesses, self-help gurus, men who claim to be apostles, and so on and on it goes. As elders, it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole all day long. The point is that people follow them. The hearts of men and women are constantly wayward. They tend to want to go astray. These folks are not bound by the Word of God. They despise God's Word. They displace God's authority with their own. Now let's take a look at the second part of the verse. So these people will be there. You'll see them in the churches. That's the way it's been for 2,000 years. But what does the rest of the verse say? There it is. Woe to him through whom they do come. While a few of them will repent, Judas and Jezebel will pay dearly for what they have done to the church. Simon the sorcerer will pay dearly. Joseph Smith will pay dearly. Charles Taze Russell will pay dearly. He is the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Russellites. But the question remains, why must the church go through this flack? We are always so stressed and pressed and we're torn this way and we're torn that way. And especially hard on the pastors and the elders and godly churches. Just the way it is. But uh, we have to believe that this is for our good. We have to still believe that even these things uh, work out for good to those who love God. We are constantly being tested. Our love for the flock is being tested. Our love for our Lord is being tested. Our faith is being tested as elders, as pastors. Our dependence upon God and His Word is tested. The question is, are we anchoring ourselves in His Word? Are you anchoring yourself in God's Word as you confront all of these wayward teachings out there? Our humility is tested. Will we continue to confess our own sin through it all? Will we avoid self-defensiveness and opt for glorifying God, standing up for God, loving God through it all? Our endurance is tested. Will we endure the pressures? Will we continue faithful? Will we continue faithful through the thick and thin? Are we okay that our numbers are whittled down? Are we okay with rejection? Are we okay with saying with Apostle Paul at the end, no man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me? So that's the question for pastors and elders that work in the ministry. Now let's move on to the second verse. We'll, we'll hit the second verse rather quickly. It's really a derivative of what is being said in the first verse. But take a look at verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So briefly, let me read Matthew chapter 18 because this is a little longer segment that probably was given at the very same time uh, that, uh, that Luke is reporting in Luke chapter 17. So Matthew 18 verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Okay, so again, these are severe words. Again, perhaps the most severe words in all of Christ's ministry. God's vengeance really does burn against those who cause little ones to stumble into error or sin. It's among the most egregious sins in Scripture. 
And one of the reasons for this, I believe, is that Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves children. Jesus loves these little children. They're sitting in the pews right now. He calls little children to him. He says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's, now he's addressing bad teaching in the church that would cause little ones to sin or to stumble or to fall into error. That's, that's really what he's warning us of here. Now you know that the application we use, and I think it's appropriate still, is to parents and pastors that allow children to be robbed of their knowledge of Christ by bad worldviews in public schools. I believe it is a sin to send a six or seven or eight-year-old child into a place in which they do not teach about Jesus. And they do not worship God. They do not fear God. They do not pray to God. I believe for Christian parents to send their covenant children into schools in which the fear of God is not taught as the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is a sin against God and a violation of this word right here. That it would be better for them that a millstone be hanged around their neck and they be drowned at the bottom of the sea. I believe this is a serious warning to every church in America. And I think every pastor in America needs to preach this. Setting our children up to be robbed of a bad worldview taught in the public schools is to offend them. And even more importantly, popular culture, bad curriculum, can produce the same thing. Media today is, is extremely dangerous for our children. This does include what we call grooming. And I, I believe that everything that's been done in the public schools in relation to sexuality for the last 20 years is this grooming, and it is offending children. And whether it's a dirty old man or a dirty old U.S. education secretary, whatever it might be, they're equally guilty of this terrible sin. And, and we as, as Christian leaders, we must not dilute any of this. Now, it's interesting, the number one reason why you will be castigated in this society as if you go after the Pied Piper of Disney, How to Train Your Dragon, Harry Potter, etc., etc. That is what raises the ire of the world and worldly leaders more than anything else. Why? Because they have such a commitment to pervert the children that maybe the highest goal of the modern world Children's books like Goldfish on Vacation by Sally Lloyd-Jones provides a tip of the hat to a homosexual family. Sally Lloyd-Jones, one of the most popular Christian children's books authors today, provides a tip of the hat to a homosexual family in Goldfish on Vacation. Children's movies like Finding Dory, again, tips the hat to a lesbian family. Toy Story did the same thing with homosexuality this year. Last year, Crosswalk.com promoted Beauty and the Beast and Onward as having, quote, strong biblical themes or strong Christian themes, both of which promoted homosexuality. This is probably the worst stuff that Christians are producing today. And I believe it would be better for them that a millstone be hanged around the neck of these ministries 
and they'd be drowned at the bottom of the sea than to do the kinds of things they're doing right now with children. Now, you will be viciously persecuted if you stand with Jesus on this. I want you to know that. But if you don't, you will subject yourself to the millstone treatment. There are no words severe enough to describe the sheer evil of popular media and the public school position on sexuality now enforced by the U.S. federal government and the Colorado state government. This age is marked by wholesale stumbling of little ones, billions of instances now. The apostasy of the younger generation is largely due to the hypocrisy of the parents' generation. It's not just the public schools either. It's not just the shaming on Facebook resulting in child suicides. Not just the thousands of television programs that depict terrible sinfulness, internet grooming and all the rest of it. But as parents, we need to heed this warning ourselves. Anger in the home stumbles your children. A refusal to repent of hypocrisy stumbles your children. Parents fighting with one another stumbles your children. Fathers who get drunk and do porn in their homes stumbles your children. Loose standards for media in the home stumbles your children. God have mercy on us. Let me say that one more time. God have mercy on us parents. And I repent publicly for the kind of media choices we had early on in our children's lives. I repent publicly for this. And I know the mercy of God covers my sins. And I'm so thankful for the forgiveness of Jesus for some of the mistakes that we made over those years. As God opens your eyes to the areas in which you have compromised and and you have stumbled your children in the home, whether it be the anger or the pornography or whatever it has been, God have mercy. May you fall on your face before God and cry out for His mercy. And He will forgive you, brothers, sisters. He will forgive you for these things. The best thing we can do is to repent in front of our children. And that will not stumble them. Let me say this. Your repentance will not stumble your kids. It will be the best thing that you can give to them. Repent before them. Ask forgiveness of them. And then cry out for mercy and ask for the forgiveness of God. And He will save you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask for His forgiveness. Cry out for His mercy. And you will go home justified. And He will save you and your household. That's the promise in Acts 16.31. Take that home with you, brothers, tonight. Believe on Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent. And He will save you and your household. And I want to end there. I want to end with a note of hope tonight. Positively, Jesus loves the little children. Jesus died for these little children. That's why he's so passionate when he says that you would stumble one of these as a Christian parent or as a Christian pastor or as a public school teacher. It would be better for you that a millstone be hanged around your neck and you'd be drowned at the bottom of the sea. Why does he say that? Why does he have so much passion? Because he loves your children. Because he loves your children so much, he died on the cross for your children. He's got a passion for your children. And he wants you to love your children, to love him. And to repent of your sins as parents as well. And receive his forgiveness tonight. Oh, that our churches would better understand Jesus' view of little children. We must baptize them. We must disciple them and treat them as saints as children who belong to God. We don't toss them out into 
the schools and say, well, they'll figure it out for themselves. We don't give them as one, uh, the homeschool, one of the most popular homeschool curriculum suppliers told us, you just give your children a little bit of this and that, give them some Buddhism, give them some humanism, give them evolution, give them all these different things, let them sort it out for themselves. That's heresy, that's stumbling children. And that was sunlight curriculum that told us that. That's just wrong. No, don't do that. These children are to be baptized. They're not pagans. They're to be baptized. They're to be treated as covenant children who are loved by God and to be raised in the nurture and the admonition of Lord Jesus Christ. They're special. You treat them as holy. Treat them as special. Let the little children come to me, he says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. The curriculum we use for covenant children will be different than the curriculum in the world. And I think it's appropriate to encourage our children to pray, even if they haven't made a profession of faith in a public forum or exhibited fruits of repentance in their lives. Still, we encourage them to pray. We raise them in the greenhouse of the covenant. We tell our children they are in the Lord and that they should obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. They're incorporated into the vine. They are part of the local church. You believe your children are in the vine? Incorporated into the vine? Say, well, yeah, there's occasional Esau that gets cut out of the vine. Yes, that's true. But you baptize them into the church. You bring them into the vine. They're incorporated into the vine. They're part of the local church. They're treated as that, as they are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the covenantal perspective, largely missing in Presbyterian and Baptist churches in America. I don't think it matters anymore if it's Presbyterian or Baptist. Neither churches really treat their children as covenant children very well. American evangelicalism is, is not maintaining this covenantal view of our children. Jesus said, these are my children. Your children belong to me. That's what he says in Ezekiel. What are you doing to my children? That's what he says to these parents in Ezekiel, where they're turning them over to Moloch. They're sending them off to the Baal schools. In, in the Old Testament. And God tur- turns to these, these parents. And he says, what are you doing to my children? These are my children. You're to raise these children for me. They have my name on them. Treat them as the children of God. Treat them as Jesus' children. Parents, you are stewards. As Christian parents, you are stewards to bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of Lord Jesus Christ because your children belong to Jesus. You believe that tonight? Then let's be good stewards. Let's treat them that way. You see, if, if you believe that your children belong to Jesus, He has His name on them, aren't you going to treat them a little more special? Aren't you going to give them a Christian paideia, a discipleship in the nurture and the admonition of Jesus? I think so. I believe so. I believe all of us will. It's just we need our perspective right here, brothers and sisters. We have to wean ourselves from American evangelicalism. We need to start seeing our children as special, as holy, as Jesus' children. And raise them in the Lord. Raise them in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight, we want to see these things as you see them. Our minds have to be shifted around. We need to see that our children are yours. And and Father, that at times we have offended you. We have been offense not just to our children, but to you.
And, and we ask that you would forgive us for this, Father, because that's why Jesus died. We, we turn away from these old habits, and we, we commit ourselves now to the task of raising our children the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to better understand these things. God, that you bring a generational faith and a generational revival back, a faith to the parents and a faith to the children. And help us, Father God, to, to raise our children as Jesus' children, as those who belong to you, and that we are stewards, and help us to do it right. By your grace, help us, O oh God, to better love you, to, to fear you, yes, but to better love you and to understand your love for us and to better understand your love for our children. That, yes, you, you sent your son to die on the cross for us and for our children. And the promise is to us and to our children. We receive this tonight, Father. And now help us to fulfill this not to stumble our children, but in the positive way, to love them and to, to love Jesus and to raise these children for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.